0: Last week I tried to capture the big picture of chapter 14. Followers of Jesus should expect tribulation. Uh, but God's grace is sufficient to sustain us through the tribulations. Uh, today I'm going to focus on Paul confronting the idolatry here in Lystra and explain uh, various ways his, his message instructs us. Uh, for example, uh, what might... Paul's message mean for you and I enjoying God's good creation around us? Uh, How might it shape our interaction with unbelievers who have no prior biblical knowledge, no biblical framework, no Genesis 1 in their minds? How does Paul confronting idolatry compel us to do likewise? How can we expect the world to respond when we do confront idolatry? Paul's message will will help us answer these questions. But first, uh, let's study the account in Lystra, beginning in verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds, with with the crowds. But when... The apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness in the created order. We thank you for bearing witness to yourself. Um, before coming to Christ, we suppressed this truth, and we ask for your forgiveness when we suppress it now. Would you continue to open our minds with your word, that we may see your world as it is, with you ruling over it and sustaining everything in it for our good and your glory. And that you would enable us and equip us to speak the word without fear and in ways that are effective to those around us and which will lead to their salvation and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this passage has three parts. We have the miracle, we've got the misunderstanding, and we've got the message. Alright? Miracle, misunderstanding, and the message. So we'll spend the bulk of our time on the message, but... The other part set the stage, and to begin we encounter the miracle. There's a man crippled from birth, never had he walked before. And God gives him the faith to be made well, and somehow, by God's doing, Paul discerns this and says, Stand upright on your feet. Now that's an incredible thing to say. Do what you cannot do. That's the way God works. He commands us to do what we can't do. And then He gives grace to do it. We get the grace. He gets the glory. Stand upright on your feet, He says. And the man walks. This miracle is one example among a number of signs and wonders that that happen throughout the book of Acts. And if we recall, uh, these signs and wonders... Uh, ...were for something very particular. They reveal that Jesus is alive... ...that His ministry was continuing through the church. It hadn't stopped with His resurrection... ...but now He's reigning from heaven, working in His church. These things, it's continuing through the church. Uh, And moreover, the miracles authenticated the disciples' message. So they gave concrete expression to their message. They... They preach the kingdom of God, breaking into the world, healing this broken world. And here we see a broken man gets up and walks. So the point was to provide a platform to announce God's kingdom, entering the world to heal all that sin has broken. But here's the thing. Miracles have their place. They do display God's power... They might uh, authenticate the message. They might reveal, yes, Jesus is alive, but they, ne- they never guarantee conversion. They never guarantee conversion. You get mixed responses throughout the book of Acts. Mixed responses in Jesus' ministry and the same in Acts. Sometimes people believe. On other occasions, people totally miss the point. And that's what happens here we encounter a serious misunderstanding. A misunderstanding. It's it's not that the crowds missed the miracle, they got it. But they just misunderstand who's behind it. And they misunderstand because of their polytheistic worldview. So we we went over some of this last week, that your worldview is kind of your all-encompassing perspective ...on everything that matters, right? It represents your most fundamental assumptions... ...and your heart commitments... ...and, your, and your, uh, the fundamental beliefs systems that you have... And, ...and the things you value. The folks in Lystra are polytheists. They believe in many gods. Two are named here, Zeus and Hermes. Zeus was lord of sky and rain... ...and for them, Zeus controlled natural phenomena on earth... Hermes was son of Zeus, and stories were told of these gods sometimes appearing on earth and disguising themselves as men. What happens when this kind of culture around you has has kind of trained you up since childhood to think this way about the world, to think this way about the sun and the rains, and to think this thing even about the miraculous? What happens when all of a sudden two men show up and... They heal this guy. Well, you say things like, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Right? For them, it had to be Zeus and Hermes visiting them. They assume Paul and Barnabas must be them in disguise. If they have the power to heal and this causes quite a stir in, 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 in the town. The, the whole thing lasts for a little while. I mean, there, there's, there's apparently a language barrier that kind of delays Paul and Barnabas' uh, response. Uh, this is that they say these things in Lyconian, uh, and enough time lapses for the temple priest to hear of it and bring the oxen to, to sacrifice in, in front of the temple um, and, and actually worship at the apostles feet. We see that in in, uh, verse 18, that they were going to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, whom they thought were Zeus and Hermes. So they they really think they're gods of some kind. They got this whole procession, garlands and all are brought out to worship the apostles. But once Paul and Barnabas recognize the misunderstanding, they rush into the crowd and they confront this false Worldview—they confront this idolatry and false worship. False worldviews will always lead to false worship, and so Paul confronts both. And they—and that brings us to the message. A couple of uh, things to keep in mind here. One is that verses fifteen to seventeen are not everything that Paul said. Uh, ...it's only a snippet. Verse 9 suggests that Paul had said much more... ...before healing the crippled uh, man... ...and very often Luke will use uh, the gospel... ...or good news as kind of a a way to sum up the whole... ...of what what they preached about Christ's life... ...death and and resurrection. And that's exactly what we find in verse 7. It says they continued to preach the gospel in Lystra... ...and then in verse 15, we bring you good news... Now, something else is that Paul's message seems to get cut short by all the commotion. Uh, Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So, this this is just chaotic in in the streets. However, a similar message reappears in Acts 17, uh, verses 22 to 31. Very similar message. Uh, And Paul is, again, preaching to pagan polytheist with, with no biblical uh, background. And he brings up the same themes and he uses the same approach that he, that he does here. That message in Acts 17 is more developed. And so if you want, you go home and you'll read it and you can see how Acts 17 helps you understand the shorter message, the little snippet we get here in Acts 14. But what is the message uh, well, for starters, the, the disciples avert the glory. Uh, they, 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 they avert the glory. They, they turn the glory away from themselves and give that glory to God. And they do this by their actions and, and their words. First, it, it says they tear their garments. Right To, to tear your garments signaled uh, a serious problem. At hand, uh, A lot of times, blasphemy in Scripture. You remember that even when they uh, accuse Jesus, uh, when the high priest falsely accuses Jesus of blasphemy, what does he do? He, he tears his, his garment. Uh, and, and that's what they do here. The disciples show the same kind of revulsion to this false worship. And they also avert glory by their words. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Why don't they just play off this for a little while? Hey, we got a crowd here. Hey, right, let's just keep this going for a little while. When they're done with their sacrifices, then we'll give them the gospel. No, that's not what they do. They, to- they rush out in the crowd and they stop this. Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Meaning, we're no gods, we have no divine nature. We're only of human nature uh, like you. And this reaction, while you're reading through uh, the book of Acts, uh, stands in direct contrast to King Herod's response in chapter 12 of Acts. Uh, You remember, this is uh, chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. King Herod takes his throne. He gives his oration. And and the people say, the voice of a God and not of a man. And what does Herod do? I mean, he, he eats it up. He loves it. He does not avert the glory. He didn't give God the glory, and an angel of the Lord strikes him dead for it. We find a very different pattern in the lives of the disciples throughout, uh, throughout Acts. When um, Cornelius comes to Peter in Acts 10, right? And he bows down at Peter's feet and worships. And what does Peter say? Get up. I, too, am a man. And we see the same here with, with Paul and Barnabas. We also are men of like nature with you. So followers of Jesus avert the glory. It all belongs to God. And I I think just insert a parenthesis here. We need to be careful. Uh, The praise of men feels so good. It feels so good to have your back patted and told how great you are. Uh, even when you're doing godly deeds for the Lord, the praise of men feels so good. But to live for this kind of praise is a direct assault on the worship of God. It is a direct assault on the message of the gospel. And we have to be careful. Follow, followers of Jesus avert the glory like we see here in the Apostles. Next, the disciples announce the gospel. They announce the gospel. So, verse, uh, verse 15, it says, And we bring you good news. Okay? Good news or gospel, you might call Luke's suitcase term. You know what a suitcase term is, right? There's a lot packed in it. We do this all the time in Christian lingo, uh, and that includes even the the gospel uh, that that we we talk about. It's kind of our suitcase term, and there's a lot to unpack. But but if you you take the book of Acts and you just cut out all the speeches in the book of Acts where the apostles are preaching, you kind of lined them up on a a, a chart, and you kind of pulled out all the elements that are are similar across the board, you you, you will notice, uh, you will get a good idea of what Luke means by... Uh, ...the good news. The bad news is clear also... ...and that is humanity is crooked. That's where Acts 2... ...that's where Peter goes in Acts 2. Humanity is crooked. Uh, God will condemn people for rejecting His law... ...and refusing Him worship. But, But here's the good news according to Acts. So these are kind of the basic elements across Acts. God was faithful to His promises. In mercy, God sent His only Son... God crucified His Son for the forgiveness of our sins. God raised His Son from the dead and vindicated Him as King. God pours out His Spirit on all who believe, giving them eternal life and internal transformation. God will send His Son again to judge the earth and replace all those crooked kingdoms with His glorious kingdom. If you renounce your old ways and trust Christ to forgive you, God will save you and make you part of his glorious kingdom. That's the gospel in a nutshell from the book of Acts. Uh, that's the good news. That's the message the apostles bring into the lives of the people they meet. Uh, but notice also, this message has a twofold purpose a, a twofold purpose. Uh, look carefully at verse 15 again. He says, We bring you good news, and here's the twofold purpose that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. You get the connection there. Okay, you you might put, In order that you should turn from these vain things. Mark that in, in your margin there. We bring you good news, in order that. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, in a polytheistic culture, this is bold. This is bold. Polytheism wasn't just like some private religious practice that you kind of did on the side. It, 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 it affected everything in life. I mean, it shaped their entire outlook on life. What they valued, how they acted, who they feared... Uh, they, ...they thought gods watched over the entrances to their homes. They had gods for the sky and the sun and the trees and the rain. Gods that stood for certain virtues. Gods for families, rulers that acted like gods. It affected court systems and business practices... ...and what you did on the way home from work... ...with the temple prostitute and how you kept favor with others... In chapter 19, we'll even see how it affects their economy. Because everybody's up in a, in a big huff. Because the silversmith's not going to be making any money if people believe in Jesus and start worshiping him. Nobody's going to be buying his idols anymore. This can't be. Nobody's going to come to the temple. So then enters Paul, who says, Hey, all of that, yeah, all that's vain, guys. Basically, you've devoted your lives to nothingness. Your whole society revolves around stuff you made up and has no life at all. So he exposes their false worldview, their false worship, their vanity, but not without also pointing them to the true and living God. What's this living God like? Uh, well, to begin, he says he created the universe. He created the universe. End of verse 15. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Okay, you got a people here. They don't know Genesis 1. And Paul is starting to build a biblical framework for understanding the world around him by talking about Genesis 1 and you see this come up many times throughout the Old Testament this phrase of God making uh, the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them in other words there's no such thing as a God for this and a God for that and a God for the wind and a God for the sea and a God for you and a God for me. No one, I mean, no, there is only one God who made everything and everyone. All other, quote-unquote, gods, gods that we create in our minds are false gods. They are not gods at all. So these people don't have this this kind of framework. And, And so Paul is building it into them. They've looked at the created order... ...and they've drawn really, really bad conclusions. And Paul corrects it. One God made everything. and He's the living God, the source of all life everywhere. He's the only sustainer of everything. Next, we also, the, the living God also controls the times. He controls the times. He creates the universe. He controls the times. Verse 16, in past generations... He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, many of us grew up with a Bible verse that goes like this. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We might call this God's special revelation in Scripture... And that has been our guide and it keeps us from walking in our own ways. The nation of Israel benefited from God's special revelation like this. God didn't give his special revelation to all the nations. He only gave it to Israel. And and, and, and he chose to give it to Israel and leave the nations in their ignorance for a really long time. He wasn't unjust in doing so. He was perfectly just to leave everybody lost. If anything, we have to say God was extremely merciful... ...to give His special revelation to anybody. He chose Israel. And there was a time when He let the nations walk in their own ways... ...with no lamp for their feet. But if you notice, Paul presents the situation... ...as as kind of a thing of the past. Right? He says... In past generations, he allowed that to happen. As if to say, God has brought a new time. Well, he says something similar to this in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, where we get a little more of of, of the idea here. What is this shift? What what shift has happened to make that, that a thing of the past? Acts 17, verse 30 He calls this this time, when the the nations walked in their own ways, he calls it the times of ignorance. Uh, So in Acts 17, 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, so here's the shift, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed... And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. That is Jesus Christ. So what's going on here? It's it's not that all all the nations everywhere all of a sudden lights go on uh, and and they're no longer walking in, in, in ignorance. But that God now has a mission not to leave them in their ignorance. You get the resurrection of Christ and what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So you got this very, this floodgates of salvation have opened for the Gentiles and everybody's getting out to those who are sitting in ignorance and saying, hey, come and believe in Jesus Christ. you got kind of flickers of this in the Old Testament. It was like, say, a Rahab and a Ruth. But now it's just going everywhere with, with uh, in light of Christ's resurrection. So the death and resurrection of Jesus have shifted redemptive history into overdrive, so to speak. Uh, So that rather than dealing with Israel alone, God has commissioned the church to take his special revelation into all the earth. And Paul is giving the Gentiles that special revelation as he speaks God's word to them. In other words, they are sitting in ignorance, and this man has just come in and said, and it ain't happening anymore, I'm here to tell you about this true and living God. But one last thing that, that comes out as Paul reveals this the living God is, is that this God was revealing things about Himself well before Paul arrived with the Gospel. God's general revelation. That is, the, the things He reveals about Himself to all peoples in general, in creation, in nature, in the seasons, in the stars, and, and, and so forth. We make this distinction throughout church history... ...between general revelation... ...the things we see in the created order... ...versus special revelation... ...what we see, what we get in the scriptures... ...and in Jesus Christ. Paul says that that God's general revelation... ...has been showing all along... ...that the living God confers goodness on all. So he created the universe... ...he controls the times... And he confers goodness on all. Verse 17. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And see what Paul is doing. He's finding common ground. Like good things that that he that that the people experience in this world, and and then he's pointing them to their true source. Right? When it it rained on your crops last week, you you remember that? God gave those. And and when you watched the summer months turned into the fall harvest, God arranged that. And and when you ate bread and drank your wine and, and said, wow, that's really good stuff, God was behind that. He's the one that gave the gifts. And when you celebrate good times, God blessed you, is the idea here. Everything God created is not just good, but it's actually saying something about God. His gifts in the created order scream truth about the living God. Uh, Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Where he says... That his invisible attributes, you gotta get this. He's saying the created order, the visible world that you can see, are revealing invisible things about God. That makes sense? There are things about God we can't see, but we can see what he made and it tells us something about him. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, ...have been clearly perceived... ...ever since the creation of the world... ...in the things that have been made. So you can discern truth... ...about God's attributes... ...by studying the things that He's made. The problem is that people suppress the truth about them. Everybody knows God... ...by the things... ...that He has made. The problem is that they suppress the truth... ...about them. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. They look at the sun and the moon and the stars... ...they taste a good hamburger... ...and instead of acknowledging God's goodness... ...they suppress the truth. You ever been in a swimming pool... ...with like a huge beach ball... And like you get like six guys to try to wrestle this thing to the bottom. You can't do it. And the thing's always wanting to come up. That's what people do with God's truth in the world. That's what all of us did with God's truth before we knew Jesus. We suppressed this truth. Now, to be clear, I need to say this. General revelation... Can't save anybody. All it can do is condemn you. And that's part of the point why Paul's bringing this up. He didn't leave you without witness. In other words, you're all accountable and you need this good news I'm preaching to you. Can't save anybody. We need God's special revelation in Scripture and in Christ to know Him in a saving way. But that doesn't mean his creation isn't speaking his goodness. It is. Every day the sun comes up on the just and the unjust. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that that reveals God's mercy. God's mercy. Every time it rains to give us food. And it rains on the just and the unjust. Again, it reveals God's goodness. God's mercy, God's patience. Not Matthew 5, Matthew 7. Which brings me to a a first uh, point of application I want to draw out. I wouldn't say that this is Luke's primary point. This is uh, one of the things you get authors like Luke who's writing this and you get Luke's message and within Luke's message you get Paul's message. So I'm drawing things from Paul's message here. We kind of We covered much of Luke's message last Sunday, but the theology in Paul's message here does teach us to know and enjoy God through the things He has made. Know and enjoy God through the things He has made. That's not to say we know and enjoy God apart from Scripture. Scripture reveals how to interpret God's created order rightly. It's also not to say that God is in the things He made in in some sort of material and, and spatial sense. We want to avoid that error as well. But God has created a good world for us to enjoy. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.17 says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Full stop. Some of us need to pause more often to enjoy the things God has made. I mean, really enjoy them. I think some Christians are afraid to enjoy them. I know I was for a long time. I was like fearful, like... I'm not going to fall into idolatry here... ...if I like, enjoy this coffee too much. Is it okay to feel really good about this pizza? Yes! God created it for you to enjoy. Some Christians get the impression... ...that spiritual maturity comes by distancing yourself... ...from the things of earth. They might even quote Colossians 3:2: ...set your minds on things that are above... ...not on things that are on the earth... Or they might sing a sweet little song about the things of earth growing strangely dim. But the next verses in Colossians 3, 2, they tell us what Paul means by things on earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What are the earthly things he mentions? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, the things on earth there in Colossians 3.2 means something more like sinful things in context. Yeah, don't set your mind on the things sin, sinful things. Instead, orient your mind around holy things, namely Christ who is seated in heaven. Have a Christ-like mindset about the world that he is right now ruling over. Everything, Colossians says, everything was created through Christ and for Christ. Everything. What you ate for breakfast this morning, God created it through Christ and for Christ. So you eat it and celebrate God's goodness to you in Him. When we enjoy the things God made rightly, we'll also learn to enjoy more of God. Think of the characteristics that come through with an artist in his painting or a composer in his symphony, in his symphony. When you look at the artist's painting, there are characteristics about the artist that come through, their wisdom, their passions, what excites them, beauty, Same thing with a composer. You you listen to his symphony and certain skills and wisdom and order and creativity come through. And that's similar to the way God communicates in creation. Romans 1 tells us that his eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived in the things he has made. Acts 14.17 says that God bears witness about himself. When he satisfies your hearts with food and gladness... To ignore these things isn't just to rob yourself of joy. It is to rob God of the glory he deserves in giving it. Right? The giver gets the glory. And if we don't enjoy him as coming from his hand, we snub him. So knowing God through the things he has made also provides a point of connection with your non-Christian friends. Just like they do with with Paul here in in, in Lystra. I mean, your non-Christian friends are looking at the same world that you are. They experience many of the same gifts from the Creator's hand that you do. You know, a well-ordered cosmos, air to breathe, friendships, double-battered fried chicken, right a good wine or chocolate. These are platforms, guys. These are platforms to proclaim the greatness and goodness of God. There is common ground there for all of us in terms of natural theology and general revelation and what we all experience in this world. Something else we learn here. Where it serves the gospel, learn to adapt to various cultures where it serves the gospel, learn to adapt to various cultures. So many of us are familiar with with Paul's principle in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, of becoming all things to all men. Read the book of Acts and you will find Paul doing that, modeling that, being your example in that. Uh, And we find that uh, principle lived out here when he's in in, uh, Lystra. Uh, Even if you... If you go home and you read uh, his sermon to the Jews in Acts 13, and you read his sermon to these Gentiles in Acts 4, you're going to notice differences. Uh, For the Jews who know Scripture, what's he doing? He's... He's pointing them to their own history... ...and how God treated the Jews throughout history. He's quoting prophecies and promises that God had made... ...and then he's showing how all those are reaching their climax... ...in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, He also does things like... ...he he proves that their law-keeping will never save them. The Gentiles, however, are biblically illiterate. They don't have these categories... So for them, Paul appeals to general revelation. uh, God's greatness in creation. And then he proves that their idol worship will never save them. So the Jews interpreted scripture wrong. And the Gentiles interpreted creation wrong. The Jews seek salvation in a righteousness of their own making. And the Gentiles seek salvation in God's of their own making. And Paul recognizes these subtle differences and then he adapts when he's speaking to them. He he has a different starting point and a different way he reasons and a different sin problem he addresses and different motivations he's calling out. But he preaches the same gospel. The message never uh, changes. The heart of the message, which I brought out a while ago, never changes. Uh, People have sometimes called this contextualization. Uh, funny story. Rachel's grandmother was a missionary in uh, in Zimbabwe, and she shares this story one time of an American pastor who comes to Zimbabwe, and this pastor ends up preaching a sermon uh, through a translator. And at the close of his sermon, he tells the people uh, tells the people that responding to the gospel was as simple as A, B, C. Right? We've heard this before, haven't we? A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. C, commit your life to Him. Right? There's only one problem. In the Shona dialect, none of those sentences begin with A, B, or C. Funny example, but it gets the point across. There was no effort by this man made to actually know where he was going, know the people, what's their language, what assumptions do they have when they hear what I'm about to say? No effort to adapt. And when that happens, Christ isn't communicated clearly. You'll encounter this well. Like your starting place with a Muslim friend is not going to be the same starting place with with, with a Hindu friend. They've got totally different worldviews. Uh, the way you preach Christ on South Las Vegas Trail will differ from the way you preach Christ on the TCU campus. Again, different assumptions about life, different backgrounds, different objections they might raise to the gospel. The people in those cultures have, a, have different assumptions about God and whether He exists, different value systems motivating them. I think we need to do a better job about learning from Paul and not just kind of jumping into these contexts and bashing people over the head with some tract that has four steps to Jesus. Like we've got to know the people and engage the people, understand where they're coming from, that we might speak words that make sense to them and draw them out of these false idols and false worship to the true and living God. So imitate Paul in his contextualization. Know the culture and adapt where it serves to communicate the gospel. Become all things to all men. The goal being to save some. But as you do that, don't shy away from confronting the idolatry of the culture. Don't shy away from confronting the idolatry of the culture. Paul confronts the idols here. He adapts so that he can communicate the gospel effectively, but he doesn't, like, change the message about idolatry. Well, in this case, I'll grant you some permission. No, he is very clear what is idolatry. He calls them vain things. Our culture has a multitude of vain things, and vain ideas, and vain pursuits. Hardly anyone would say, that they worship the gods of Zeus and Hermes. But for us, it's self and sex and loads of cash. It's safety and comfort and entertainment. It's political ideas and sports teams and accomplishments at work. It's power and social media and the latest iPhone. Our culture teaches people to value these kinds of things so highly that sometimes we aren't even aware of how they've trumped our allegiance to Jesus in the church. Like a fish scarcely knows it's in water, sometimes we scarcely realize how much the culture has skewed our view of God and warped our understanding of Jesus Because, let's face it, everybody's fine with following Jesus until life becomes dangerous. Or until Jesus demands we start cutting off arms and gouging out eyes. And Paul doesn't back down. He calls the idolatry as it is. Part of taking the gospel into our culture is exposing the vain things for what they are. And then turning people to the true God. But keep this in mind, we won't call people away from the idols that we're still bowing to. We won't call vain those idols we still worship. Part of taking the gospel into our culture is first exposing the vain things that we give ourselves to. And then looking to the gospel to turn us to the true and living God. Because it's in the gospel that we see the glory of God. ...shining in the face of Jesus. Preaching the gospel involves turning people from idols... ...to serve the living God. We see this in Paul's ministry so clearly here. Uh, It happens in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 and 9... uh, where, ...where he's talking about what happened when the gospel came to them. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word... ...but in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. What happens when the Word of God falls on the people in power, in full conviction, and in the Holy Spirit? You know what happens? This is what happens. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what happens. And so we need to pray that it happens here with us, and we need to pray that that happens in our ministry to others in the world. Finally, don't always expect it to go well when you confront idolatry. Certainly, the Lord will use your preaching to save some. We see that, that he used Paul's preaching to save some. But, but we must also expect persecution when we speak the truth. Expect persecution when we speak the truth. Right? They don't respond very well here. Uh, there's actually a shift. We didn't read it earlier, but... There's a shift between verse 18 and verse 19. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. What? Like we went from applause to attack. We're glad you're here. Gods, Zeus and Hermes, kill these guys. Even the monotheistic Jews team up with idolaters to stop the gospel. The Jews forsake their theology about God as long as it stops this Jesus from being spread. And it's just like they did with Jesus, isn't it? Earlier I noted that signs and wonders showed that Jesus' ministry continued through the apostles. But something else that shows Jesus' ministry continuing through the apostles is the way they suffered for the sake of the gospel. So in and through the sufferings of these men, we see actually Christ living in these men. They were laying down their lives to turn others away from the vain things to the living God. Jesus laid down His life to turn us away from vain things to the living God. Far more, He gave His life to sever our love affair with idols and false gods. He gave His life to free us from our slavery to idols. And then He rose again to send us the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer, what does He do? He drives away all that is unholy. He drives out false worship. The Holy Spirit is the chief idol smasher. He smashes our idols and helps us to worship God in truth. So as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, let us eat and drink and remember what God has done in Christ to make us true worshipers. Give thanks to God when you you eat the bread and drink the cup Give thanks to God for all the idols that He's already smashed in your life and and severed your tie with. And then pray. Commit those those others that exist and remain. Pray that He continues to do that work of sanctification in you. Dale, you want to come eat us in the supper? Oh, I'm going to sing first.